Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often this hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Brad Guyacody, VP of Engineering at Motorway. After a 25-year engineering career that began with him training as a psychotherapist, Brad's range of insight into engineering and managerial work and the psychological aspects of these is unique. We discuss the itches that different types of work scratch and how these itches change the progress of our career. We discuss being our full selves at work, the kind of choices Brad has made throughout his career and how he views these in retrospect. Finally, we discuss how learning from other people, as well as from introspective conversations with ourselves, shapes who we are at work and as people. If knowledge workers are pursuing work Mm -hmm. from a place of intrinsic motivation and they follow their own calling, how does that relate to you and what was your itch? (laughs) That said, everyone does follow extrinsic motivation. Everyone does care about what they get paid and making sure that's getting it. That's part of it. But it doesn't necessarily make you completely happy. Having a bigger salary will make you happy in the short term. It doesn't make you happy in the long term, as long as your needs are met. But the the interesting one's an interesting one. Like I've now been in tech for 25 years, which makes me almost old, but not old. Uh, actually, being paid for being in tech for 25 years, it's like I've been interested in programming for a long time. There's a difference. Yeah. Uh, my first 15 years, the things that made me happy and made me excited was... Uh, being an engineer and solving complex problems and go, oh, here's something. How are you going to build it? How are you going to get creative to design an architecture, build a system to solve this so it works and it doesn't fall over and it's easy to maintain? Then about a decade ago, my motivation kind of changed because that started to get too easy for me. It was like, it was no longer a challenger and it edge and it was no longer the itch. And that's when I kind of moved into management and then building in teams and organizations that can deliver software and the same kind of philosophy around how do we make sure there's no single points of failure in the human kind of side so if somebody leaves or does something else it's not going to fail how do we make sure everyone's supporting each other and within an org how is it all ticking how's that engine room of humans getting to work and talk to each other and communicate so it becomes efficient that was my motivation and efficient is partly that word but it's efficient includes having fun enjoying it going through and that became my motivation about building a well-running engineering organization and move more from the technology so that's me on a personal kind of level it's interesting how you when you ran through that that it was less about the people side of it and it was more about the intellectual challenge of building a group of people who will work together well People's part of that, right? People are complicated, fun, awesome individuals, and every one of every single one of us is a unique human with different needs, wants, and ways of working. And part of that is about when you actually build a way of working, 
which is going to help every single person be satisfied, happy, and do their best work, you get happy people. That's kind of the it kind of matches up the both. It's a real yeah, it's a real fun trick, which is never perfectly right. There's no easy answer to it. When I talk about building an engineering org which makes things work, it's about helping everyone be successful. And everyone works in a slightly different way, has slightly different ways of working, slightly different ways of their motivation and how they process information, for example. Like some people uh, process information by listening, others from reading, others from doing. And you try to build a org and a way of working that can kind of help everyone do that. And so fun challenge to do at times. It's a fun challenge to make sure it all works out. When you're reflecting on your own itch, how do you mm -hmm. identify where it comes from? Uh, one of the biggest challenges I had was when I moved from having uh, scratching my maker itch to scratching my manager itch. Because as, as a maker, your itch gets scratched very easily because at the end of the day, you can look back and go, oh, I built something. And then when you move into manager mode, scratching that itch is you don't get the dopamine hit on a day-to-day -day basis for the most part. The impact of what you do is seen six months down the track or a year down the track when you have spent time coaching somebody or mentoring them about how to do something or set up the building blocks in pace, place for that to hit. So a lot of that scratching that itch is I need to keep on looking at that bigger picture because I'm thinking... 12 plus months out, both as how, how am I helping people grow, how am I helping the organization grow, how am I putting those in place, and then that's how I scratch that itch, or doing kind of these kind of things where I do a talk and I get to talk about all the stuff I've done, because it's compressing a long period of time. The happy days when you celebrate is like when you found somebody who's now grown into a new role, or they've you've delivered a major initiative and project which take a long time to hit, or you, you go on vacation and nothing goes wrong when you're away because you build an organization that runs without you and everything ticks well and everyone's stepped up because, again, your big job as a manager is to make yourself redundant and irrelevant and you've built an org and you've empowered everyone to do stuff without you, you've succeeded. So that's how I kind of scratch that itch. It's a very tricky one to do. And you have weeks where you look back and you go, oh, I have no idea what I've done this week because you've had 20, 50, 100 different side conversations and bits where you're coaching and mentoring and nudging to get everything back online, but it's no practical output sometimes. But where does that itch, how do you know where that itch is coming from? Because like, I guess it's it's natural that if, I guess, if you worked backwards from the maker itch, it was something that you want and the next challenge that seemed, that seemed right. Um, but there are also plenty of makers who spend their whole lives building and choose not to go into management. How do you reflect on what it is that's motivating you there and understand it properly? It, it, this was just me on a personal level. Is my interest just started to move more into the people and how people work together. And that's where I could see that I was interested in more than actually uh, writing the code and building the software around that. And that's when I could kind of see that Hmm. I'm enjoying this more than I enjoyed my interest shift. People, we grow up and we change. It was like I never started I never started my career off wanting to be in management. I used to have a healthy disdain for management as an engineer. As an engineer, I was a very practical person and just wanted to build stuff. Hel healthy disdain. I will, I'll call it healthy disdain. Some of my managers of the time probably called it more of an unhealthy disdain. But no, it was... It, yeah, and a lot of that was also... It, 
outside work in my volunteering, I started to do a lot more stuff with uh, people and organisations and helping lead groups of humans. That's where I started to go, oh, I could do this at work as well. That's where that kind of each started to scratch. And then I started doing it on a smaller scale and I quite enjoyed it. And I was like, yeah, I kept on doing it. When have you felt furthest away from doing your best work? Furthest away would probably be when I don't have as much um, influence or control as I think I do. Uh, so a lot of like what I do is try to empower people and empower myself. And I'm not one that is very good at being micromanaged and going, hey, specifically, you need to work in this way, that way, and how we do things. Having principles and guidance of how we do things and a vision about what we do, the freedom to do it in an interesting way works. Whereas when I'm tightly narrowly defined that you need to like move this from point A to point B, and this is exactly how you're going to carry this, for example, that's not where I do my best work. The other way I don't do my best work is when I don't get to bring a bit of spark and uh, sparkle into that. I could never work at a company where I have to wear a shirt and tie to work, for example. It's constraining. It's not allowing my individuality and everyone else's individuality to shine. And it's irrelevant to how you do your job. So they're kind of things. It's when I have very narrow rails about how to do things. And there's certain things that we need narrow, narrow rails. Like occasionally I do fire performance with people where if you do stuff in a different way, somebody's going to get sudden fire. There's reasons for having narrow rails. When there's narrow rails for no specific it's not empowering. It's like, again, I'm a knowledge worker. I need the freedom to actually be creative problem solving, not being told that this is exactly how you have to do things, which is probably why I wasn't a great, uh, I was a good engineer at times when people told me I have to do specifically X, Y, and Z. And one company I worked for for a very brief period of time where I had to wear a shirt and tie to work, it was never going to work for me. Sounds like in some ways it's also a, a, a self-expression and a desire to just be yourself in that moment and not just follow what someone else is telling you. We talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. And inclusion to me is being able to bring your true self to work. Being told what to wear and how to wear it is not bringing your true self to work. It's not doing what we do as knowledge workers, which is about creative problem solving. It's not about understanding and pushing the boundaries of what we're doing. Uh, and so for me, that's like a very, it's a clash. So if if we... If we, as part of our work, want people to bring their full selves to work and be that creative and ex expression-led individual, how do we then manage the difficulty that we difficulty that we have with wrapping our sense of identity and our sense of work together? If they become so close. Do, should we be separating them in some way or should we be mindful that they're becoming the same thing or does it not matter? The lines blur quite a lot. So I think about work outside work hours, but I might not actively work it. Because again, work is, work is central to what I do, but it's not the, the pure everything, be all and end all. It kind of blurs, the lines blur. But when I'm away on vacation, like I was away this weekend, I didn't think about work, I'm doing other things. The thing is, like, again, it's knowledge work. It's not something you can just show up and you do work for a period of time because it's fixed, then you go through. It blurs both ways, especially when you get into it and you're trying to solve an interesting problem. It kind of delves in. Some of the best ideas I've had is when I've been on a run or lifting weights or in the shower. 
or on the motorbike. Motorbike's probably one of my most meditative kind of areas because all you can think about when you're riding a bike properly is the bike. But then a little idea pops into your head about, oh, we can do this and that. So it's healthy in areas. If you're working constantly, it's not healthy. But that kind of drift between the two kind of works through. But again, for me, like work is important to what I do. It's like I could be doing a lot of other things and I enjoy what I do. And I'm okay with that blurring. And most people I work with, if they've got a tricky problem at the back of their head, they're going to it's going to suddenly pop into their dreams occasionally. <laughs> that's okay. It's just when it becomes all-consuming, that's when it becomes unhealthy. When you're working like 50, 60 hours a week and all you can think about is work. What are you optimizing for here? Are you optimizing for happiness? Are you optimizing for meaning, fulfillment? What is it? You're not optimizing for any of them. You're trying to balance them all. So if you're optimizing for happiness and happiness and fulfillment and success and all that, it's kind of very happily interlinked. Like if you wanted to be purely happy, like I love smoking cigars and drinking whiskey. I couldn't do that 24 by 7. (laughs) Or I could, but it'll be very disastrous and it would be a very destructive period of time. It would be fun. But it's the same with fulfillment as well. It's like I'm happy when I get teams running and working well together and that kind of ticks through. And I again success and helping that succeed and helping people succeed so it all kind of interlinks between it's all like i call it like there's a bunch of different spinning plates it's like sometimes you might go spin this plate a little bit more and focus on the happiness the self-care the well-being other times you might be focusing on this it's trying to get that balance right and so balance is going to be different for every person but the balance is also going to be different for during periods of time there's periods of time where i'm completely and utterly focused on work and because that's where my brain is at the time. There's other times when I know what I need and what's good for both where I'm working is for me to take a step back. I had a lovely weekend where I completely disconnected for five days. That's great. It's, it's all about balance and working out what balance is going to work well for you. And that's what I call I call it the spinning plates. Because even if you're completely focusing on uh, satisfaction and at work, you still need to spin that happy plate. You still need to spin that self-care plate. And there are times when you see those plates wobble and that's when you need to go, right, I need to take a step back and go focus on that one. What would you say to someone who said, well, the outlier success comes from mm-hmm. complete and utter focus on one specific thing over a longer period of time, complete dedication. Don't spin your plates. Don't spread your bets. Don't find balance. Stay hyper-focused on one thing. You're going to burn yourself out. <laughs> You can do that for a short period of time, and you can do that. And a short period of time for one person might be a couple of years. If you if you do that for a constant period of time, you are going to burn yourself out, and you're going to let the other muscles atrophy and not work it out. You're not going to work out what happiness is and that that joy of just spending some time doing nothing without any goals or spending time in the company of somebody just for the sake of spending time with them. You're gonna you're gonna miss out on that other bit. You can do the hyper-focus for a period of time, and there's times I've completely hyper-focused and spent on work or spent on something else. You can't do it forever, and you shouldn't do it forever. You need to have a balance in life. Life is too short. You need to balance. It's healthy to do it sometimes. It kind of depends, right? Everything about is about having the awareness about what's happening with both yourself and what is going to be sacrificed. There are times where I'll focus and I'll work silly just to get something done because I know it's I need to do, I want to do that and I need to do that. If you're being forced to do it, that's a different question. That's unhealthy. 
if you're choosing to do it and you're having the choice and you're seeing what the impact is to yourself and everything else, that's okay. But if like your boss is coming to you and saying you need to work 90 hours this week to get something done and they're forcing you to, that's not healthy. Hmm. If you're choosing to step up and do something and focus on it, I think that's a choice. And the biggest thing we have as adults and humans is to have that freedom of choice. Yeah, freedom of choice is big. There's times when I do, like a, an easy example is I still do hackathons occasionally and hack days where I write code. And I zone, for that day, I'm completely zoned out because I'm writing code again and scratching that itch. Hmm. And that's a hyper-focus for just a period of a day where I'm not paying attention to other bits going on. I'm. You don't need to do hyper-focus for like months and years, but it's a choice. Mm-hmm. And having the awareness about what you are doing and why you are making that choice is very important. I would love to dive into choice because... As a knowledge worker, we have so many different choices. And especially as someone who's a software engineer, you have so many different options that you could pursue. And I would love to dive into how you've made decisions in the past when you've had multiple options and how you've then made those decisions. Um, Perhaps we could run through your decision to join hotels and then smart pension and then motorway. And like at each point, you will have had multiple choices. What did your process look like, and how how did you how did you run your, your decision making? Yeah, it was it's very separate. Like when I was an engineer, it was very different. So as a manager, it was a kind of like uh, going through. So at Hotels.com, uh, I'd just come out of my first proper management job at VML. So the big thing I was looking for was an opportunity to be able to learn off other people, and having a where there was a cohort of other engineering leadership within the organization. And so Hotels.com in particular had both a good reputation, and they still do, and they're still a great company, with engineering as a discipline and also as engineering leadership. And so when I was meeting people there, it was great. It was like, oh, I can learn off people. There's a group of other engineering managers I can learn off. And that decision was right. I learned off a huge amount of people over there, especially my my boss at when my boss who joined after I joined, who Sue, who's absolutely wonderful and great, who I still learnt most of my, a lot of my lovely little tricks and techniques of her leading teams. So yeah, but it was a lot about that at that point. And then at, when I was looking for a new role, I was looking to kind of step up to the next uh, leadership level, which is helping grow and run a engineering org. And so when I started looking around, I interviewed at a few places and then I went in and I met, went to Smart Pension and I met the first group, which was our Martin and Maria, who were absolutely wonderful, and they were looking after the people team. And I started to talk about the culture of the company, because while I can help build out culture at a organisation, you can kind of build on what's already there. And so you need to find a group that again matches to my core values. And some of my core values, in particular, are around collaboration, around trust, around inclusion, around bringing your true self to work. And so that kind of matched up. And then I met Sam Barton, who was CTO at Smart, and we just got on great within our first meeting. We start, we were starting to solve problems in the org before I even joined during our interview. It was just a perfect kind of match. And so, yeah, what I'm looking for was I'm looking for, I'm interviewing people as much as they're interviewing me. It's like I'm looking for an organization whose culture matched me and then the plus the people I'm working with. And then I, yeah, I got up to the point where I was doing the same thing again. I'm going, oh, right. I was asking myself, what do I want to do next? Do I want to... I've built uh, one company up from a Series B in a world-class engineering org. Can I do it again? And that was me trying to challenge myself. So I started looking around and Motorway reached out to me and I went and had a chat with them and I met again 
the founders, the rest of the exec team, and I went, right, this is a great match. We have the same core values. We have the same beliefs about what we want to do. You're people I can spend time working with. And again, yeah, a lot of it is finding the people who, and I tell this when I tell anyone I'm interviewing as well, you should be interviewing us as much as we're interviewing you. You need to find a place that's a fit for you as much as we need to find somebody who's a fit for us. And the things I look for is like, uh, it's that passion for doing a good job. It's nice humans. It's doing something that is going to change. And yeah, but it's again, people that I want to work with. I often think the, the more fun question you should be asking me is, what about the companies you rejected? Uh, where did they go now? Where did, what did they happen? Or do I second guess myself about those choices? Sometimes I do. I, I did that the other day. I was looking up a couple of places I didn't choose to go join. And what happened? I go, what would have happened if I joined? <laughs> End of the day, though, it is primarily, it is a job. And there's a lot of jobs out there. And it's a very important decision because I spend most of my life at work. And having that satisfaction and fulfillment is very important. Does that answer that question? That was a little bit of a more rambly answer than normal. It's like, normally I'm very specific. I liked it. And I think it was clear that it's people. Yeah. I am really interested that you reflect on the choices that you haven't made mm -hmm. with that type of... It's not regret, is it? It's not regret. It's like... It was different choices. And the biggest choices are is when I've met the people... And it's just not a fit. It's like I can see that, for example, uh, there's a place I interviewed with a while ago where they were like very, very, very focused on uh, how do you crack the whip? How do you make sure you're getting the most out of people? And they ask questions about well, how do you get a team to work uh, more than 50 hours a week and all this. And I was like, hey, this is not a healthy. That's not my job as a supportive manager and leader to get the best out of people by supporting them and helping them you get more delivery out than that kind of push. Sometimes that's been a close call. It's like, well, maybe, maybe it wouldn't work out. But again, it's that click in that chemistry. You need to be able to bounce off whoever you're working with. You need to have your manager you're going to learn off. You're going to need to have a team that you're going to be able to success, uh, work well together. It's that chemistry. Mm. It's really hard. It's a hard one to describe, right? It's a hard one. You can't make it mathematical. Interviewing is part art, part science. And, that art is that chemistry about it, whether you connect with the people you're chatting to. What happens if you connect with two people in an interview process? So it's two companies in an interview process. Then you're looking at more the uh, vision and the overall goals about what's happening and what's going through. That for, that, for me, that's kind of, it's the challenge of the company and the problem space you're trying to solve. And how do you know what, what resonates most with you there? That's when you do the big lists and the checks and the, ooh, what am I trying to solve? And what problem am I trying to do? And what do I want to be doing? Yeah. And again, it's a point in time kind of thing. It's so when I when I was interviewing to join Motivate, I think I interviewed with twelve different companies, and I rejected ten of them uh, because it wasn't either. It wasn't bad. None of the company, some of the none of the companies were bad or anything. It was just not a fit for me. It was I we either didn't click. I didn't either click with the people we were interviewing for whatever reason, or the vision wasn't right. Uh, a good example is I could never work for a gambling company, for example. I need to work for a company that's doing good out in the world. It doesn't have to be like you're massively changing the world with like solving world hunger or something, but it has to be something that's making solving a problem to make life, people's lives better without making them worse. So like a gambling company, for example, I have no issue with people gambling, but it's not the way they make the money is by making other people's lives a little worse. Uh, so the vision of the company and the goal that they want to do, and yeah, around the impact mm. around that. That's part of it. 
But again, it's like I also understand I'm in a very privileged state. And most of us in tech and engineering are in a very privileged state where there's more jobs than there are people to do those jobs. So we can get bit very picky and choosy. I remember back twice I've gone through the recession uh, where you had to be a little less picky because uh, all of us need to work to put food on the table at the end of the day. So it's a question about how long my principles would last if I needed to do that. And it, it makes it so much harder to know when to quit too if there's so much grass on the other side. At, at points at which, for example, at Smart Pension where you've, you've, you're leading a department of like 250 people, you've grown it, this is so personal. How do you, what, how, what process did you go through to know to quit? Uh, so one thing I am, so I've also trained as a psychotherapist for a while and I've done a lot of group therapy. So my awareness of what's going to upset me and what's not going to upset me is quite, is quite high. So I knew that at the time, the things that were annoying me, annoying me is the wrong word. Things were frustrating me. were going to get worse and that wasn't going to be healthy for me and the rest of the organization. I kind of hit the point where I had done all the change I could do. At the same time, I'd helped a lot of people grow and it was like probably the hardest conversations I had was to let my team and people know I was going to move on. Yeah, and that was a hard one to do. It was more letting you, yeah, the team I was working with and the people I was working with know I was going. But I knew it was right. It was, I'd hit that limit for me and that challenge for me and it was time for also for the good of the organization for somebody else to come in with a kind of different view and thinking about what's going on and how they could do things i always i always I, if you ask me about regret sometimes i regret it and go what would it be like if i'd stayed but no it was the right decision at the time i think with your psychotherapist interest we should just dive right into your parents <laughs> like <laughs> How, how have they influenced what work you're doing today and how you chose it? Uh, parents are part of it. I would actually say more about, again, I'm just uh, trained, so therefore everything that happens in my life kind of influences the choices I make and everything that happens is kind of impacts how you see the world and go through. I fell into technology. I, I, had a, I was a geeky, introverted kid that did not like people and humans and I was shy. And so, therefore, I fell into programming because that gave me satisfaction at the time. I had a Commodore 64, which I used to both play games on and write code occasionally. I never spent time looking at a career plans or goals. Like, the first time I found out that programming actually paid well was after I finished my university degree and I got offered my first job and I was getting paid more than my mother, who had been working for 20 years with the tax office, and I went, what? I just fell into it. Because uh, I was passionate about it. I, I enjoyed it. So that choice went through there. Falling into management, though, that one is a lot kind of uh, from my both my mother and father. Uh, my mother was... Uh, my mother passed away earlier in the year. My mother, though, was a uh, what I call a proper natural leader. She cared about people and she cared about looking after humans. And that kind of has always drilled into me. That's why I do a lot of volunteering work as well. It's because I think I'm privileged enough that I should help the world be more sparkly. And then my father, he is the one who kind of like has a very forthright, forceful will, which for those who know me know that I have a very forthright, forceful will and help people 
see what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. So yeah, they never, I, I still don't think my dad understands what I do for a day to day, even as a programmer. My mum never did. But no, it's an interesting one at that. And more about how I've developed my management and leadership has been, been when I run into different individuals throughout my life. That's kind of like how I've learned. Every single person I kind of work with, I kind of learn and I steal another couple of tricks and techniques and ways of thinking from them. Stick and keep on building up my own unique style of how it, that all works. Do you think that um, your ability to think through these things and recognize them in the way that you do has helped your search for your own best work? Yeah, 100%. Uh, being reflective is a very, very important thing. It's one I think one of my uh, strongest uh, ways I can keep improving as a person. I know things I've done, like if you dropped me into stuff 10 years ago, I would do it completely differently because I've grown and constantly grown and learnt. And even if you asked me for a month ago be different as well the pro the challenge though is to make sure it's reflective and not uh not unhealthy mm. what ifs what would i have done differently what I've, it's about learning and tweaking and understanding and then having enough people around you that will tell you when you're being a muppet mm. and reminding you when you've done something wrong or a little off piece and giving you that feedback and one thing i'm rather good at and rather proud of is i tend to surround myself with like my engineering managers in particular at work will have fun arguments and discussions with me in that healthy way when they tell me they think I'm wrong, which is good. That's how you build up a healthy, diverse team of people that are going to get the best work done. So having those kind of difficult and hard conversations, mm. it's a good thing. But yeah, the re re introspection is a, it's a good thing. If you ask me about a plate spinning, it's good to have that introspection. It's good to take that step back. It's good about having a think around it. It's also good to have an external party occasionally being able to bounce that off to make sure they're there. You can reflect back on it. It's interesting that your your parents play the typical high achiever card. You've got the mother who's deeply caring and the father who has the iron will, like the polar opposites <laughs> that kind of give you the I don't know the golden the golden ticket in some ways. And that's funny how that works itself out. It's an interesting one with that. It's like, yeah, and it's also, I will also say, it's partly um, the products of their time as well. And it's about, they kind of fell into the stereotypical gender roles of the time. Uh, and for me, I tend to be much more of a very blurry line around a lot of things and how it works. But uh, I'm a weird and unusual mix of both my parents, hopefully in a good way. Interesting that if your parents there were shaped by their time and, and their society, um, mm -hmm. it is uh, inevitable that uh, that you were also changed by it. Do you see any changes in the people that you lead now? Like, uh, is it helpful to be able to spot people from different generations who can who can kind of give in different ways? If you do it that way, you're bringing a huge amount of biases into play because you're taking assumptions based on somebody's age about how they're going to work and operate and everyone's kind of very, very unique. Mm. Uh, so some people might come from X background and therefore they think differently or whatever, but that's, mm. you need to actually spend more time working out what somebody's motivation and what their actual both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is more than 
they were born in this generation, therefore they've come from this culture, therefore mm. they're X, Y, and Z. Mm. And the only way to get to that route is to have those conversations and chats with people. I'm fascinated and I love humans. I love people. So the one thing I tell, when we're interviewing for individual contributors, the one thing we can't teach is passion for building software that we can't teach that. Everything else we can kind of teach. When it comes to managers, the one thing we can't teach is passion for people. You either have that or you don't have that. You don't. If you don't have the passion for helping other people get the best out of themselves, you'll be an okay manager. You're never going to be a great manager. It's the same as a programmer. If you don't have, if you know all the skills and stuff, but you don't have a passion for building awesome, awesome software, you're never going to be great. And when you have that, it's like a lot of it is about those conversations to work out. Yeah, this is what. This is what makes you happy. This is what makes you tick. Mm. You're, you're asking me a lot about what, how I get my best work. A lot of what I do is to try to work, do the same with people. Mm. It's working out what, what do they need? What's their motivation? What makes them happy? What makes them tick? What, what's making them scratch a ditch? Why are they getting out of bed? Why are they coming to work? And every single person is slightly different, and they're different at different times as well. People change. People grow. People decide, oh, what made me happy a week ago is what's going to make me happy now. And if you've done everything right, then you can kind of help people get that best work. And there are times that they're not, and then the times they're going to go do something else, and that's also fine. The world of the world is a very small place. I keep crossing paths with people frequently and often. It's kind of mysterious. We spend a lot of time talking about how you can perhaps reflect on your own working life or um make career decisions that can move you in a forward direction there's also i guess another element to it which is spending more time thinking about what your expectations are and how can you what to do with those expectations because sometimes they're too high and sometimes they're too low do you ever spend any time thinking about your expectations and how they relate to work i spend a lot of time thinking about work sometimes i think right maybe i want to go back and become a programmer again where i can leave and stop and Go do other bits. So I do that focus occasionally, and I think about it. But uh, it's a uh, yeah, I enjoy what I do. That's the problem. I really enjoy what I do. <laughs> and he, I like building out teams and getting teams and the best out of people. That's what scratches my itch right now. And I threw a I threw a comment out with someone the other day. It's like, yeah, I've done this for 25 years. Maybe I should go do something differently. And they went, don't be silly. You like what you do too much. And again, we all have good weeks and bad weeks, right? There'll be weeks where I go, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's like, I spent all week dealing with the messes. And, it's like, and then other weeks where it's all, yeah, ticking over and everything's great. And you're getting that uh, dopamine hit from uh, mm -hmm. things happening. But it's, it's a, yeah, what makes you happy? And it's like, yeah. And again, I, I expect in, like now I've done management for about 10 years, maybe I'll change again. I've got another 20 years of work ahead of me. Mm. I couldn't retire and sit at home and do nothing because I'll be bored out of my brain. I might decide to go do something differently. Mm. And that's when the time you start to explore and like, oh, what does make me happy? What do I want to try? Mm. Again, as we talked about earlier, the biggest thing that we have is we have that freedom of choice. And having that chance to actually go explore. And... You're a kind of human logical thinker. You look at these things kind of rationally. And one of the difficulties, I think, with finding work is that at the moments with which at which you need the information, you usually don't have it. Mm -hmm. So if, let's say, you're slightly earlier on in your career and you're deciding whether you want to go into, I don't know, 
infrastructure engineering or backend engineering, you probably haven't done it. Yep. Which is kind of cruel because you, in other decisions, you can feed data into a system where you can then make the decision with real time information. And I guess it's just your kind of classic problem of an existentialist. How do you make decisions when you can't predict the future and when you can only make these decisions with the information that you've got at hand? And our discovery of work is the is a, a classic example of that. How do you think one should navigate it? This is one of those things where I'm just going to say, deciding to get in a way, it's a... It's a life-altering decision, but it's not a life-changing decision too much. If you spend six months working in infrastructure and you go, this is not for me, changing that isn't the... It's not like when you have a child where that's a life... You can't get rid of that child. You're with that child forever. Whereas with a job and you've tried something out and gone, ooh, this is not for me, that's okay. And if you find the right company as well, which... Uh, you can always dabble in those kind of things. If you join a company, you join it as a back-end engineer, you want to dabble a little bit in front-end to see if that's for you or vice versa. That's kind of the choice. What you should be looking for is to find that place which is going to give you those opportunities to grow and to t try things out and see what's going to fit for you beforehand. And It's like when I started my career, I started my career off as a front-end engineer and I spent that for about a year before I realized I hate front-end. Well, not hate. Hate's too strong a word. I got more satisfaction building back end and connecting up the big blocks uh but yeah it's about having a, it's finding a, it's more about finding a place where you get to try those things out again it's a challenge though right okay junior and in, in, in this is one of my biggest frustrations with uh tech as an industry the number of junior jobs is so out of proportion with everything else and we, we we as a complete group do not grow the next generation as well as we should do because it's it's, an, it's a zero-sum game it's like if you're not growing that everyone's competing for the same senior and mid-level talent which is crazy uh no does that help answer that one it's a really hard one to do but if i go back to my career it's like my first job though it was the first place it would take me because mm. it was it was not a not as challenge and then from there i kind of build up and then started to delve into different things and then again i got very lucky it was a dot-com boom at the early start of my career which meant mm. i had a huge amount of opportunities to do a huge amount of different things yeah but then it's interesting because i don't think we necessarily hear the stories where things went wrong uh -huh. uh, we usually just hear the stories of where they looked right and in a kind of linkedin age where we're all looking at ourselves compared to someone else <laughs> it's like well how am, I meant, how am I meant to know whether I'm... That, that looks perfect. You know, oh my God, look at Brad. He just basically figured it out. And then he went from Hotos.com. Then he went to Smart Pension. And then he went to Mobile. Oh my God. Like, he's, he knew what was going to happen before he even did it. Uh, so let me just say this. The one thing I'm looking forward to most when I retire is deleting my LinkedIn. And <laughs> it, is, it is the one... Because it is giving, it gives a very warped kind of view, and there are, there were choices of. There's a couple of companies I picked and worked on early in my career, which I would never have done again. It was just the wrong decision because I didn't ask the questions about the culture of the company, the growth, how, how are they going to help support me, how are they help growing, and I kind of didn't know that at that time. And you make mistakes, but again, the mistakes you make, it's not, it's not 
the big one, because uh, people get very, very worried about my career choices and how it's going to impact me. You're going to be working for quite a while. You can, you learn, you can change. If you've got a job that's paying the bills and giving you a bit of growth and you can look around and move around. And you, the more you work, the more you realize what makes you happy. It took me a long time to work out that, oh, what makes me happy is helping grow and build organizations. I thought what made me happy was writing code. Kind of shifted. Yeah, you, you're making me like, think back about the the bad choices I made. I wish I could name them, but I can't name them because it's just bad. But there were a couple of bad choices early on in my career, which was just not... did not work out well. A couple of great choices, a couple of really bad ones. And what a relief. I mean, it's so, it's so heartening to hear that you made bad decisions. And mm-hmm. uh, if... It's almost a bit like the kind of... Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I just you don't we just don't want to take the when our life is so public, it it feels like actually the better decision is to just preserve your image and not take risk. Yeah, it's the it's the illusion, right? It's, we all make mistakes. We all make the wrong choices at times. And again, part of it was when I did make those wrong choices, I worked it out and I decided to move on and change at the times. But the biggest bit is like even wherever I worked, where it was like slightly not right, I learned stuff. I learned, I met people. I learned bits and bobs. I grew. I learned more about what not, what where not to work for the next place. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you took those lessons through. But no, it's there. Uh, yeah, but this is why I hate. I I love and hate LinkedIn. It's I have a love hate relationship. But it is like everyone wants to keep shouting about. This is great. This is great. I've done this. I've done that. It's like, it's the um, it's the illusion about that we're all perfect and having this wonderful, yeah. Mm. How how do you get over that? I think a lot of the technologies of the future, products of the future, mm-hmm. they all look a little strange before they appear. <laughs> So, for example, like you could take a. Um, uh, it's almost like most great things look like toys. They almost feel like scams, because there's their secrets hidden in plain sight. Take an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Let strangers stay in your house. This is weird. What's going on? And in, um, I mean, there's that classic story of the um, the guy who invented the sandwich. It was like really late. And it was only because he was an aristocrat and he didn't want to get his hands dirty whilst he was eating the meat, but he just wanted the meat. So he said, bring it to me between two pieces of bread. And then all of a sudden he becomes the guy who made the sandwich. Like, but it's so obvious, but you just wouldn't, you just wouldn't think about it. You just wouldn't do it. And I think it's the same potentially with technology, with positions of the future, with the things that we need to lean into. It's almost as if these things appear like toys we need to get over the fear of looking a little strange in today's society. And you strike me as the type of person who doesn't have a problem necessarily feeling a little not like you're running the normal path. And does that help you lean into things of the future where you can be more abstract with the way that you think? Your whole big description is like, especially that's how a good engineering org kind of works, right? You're trying to solve... You you solve complex problems simply, and you do it in such a way that people go, that was so easy. But behind the scenes, there was so much thinking and working out to make it happen. It's the same like with a lot of what I do. I know sometimes what I do looks easy because there's a huge amount of thinking and 
processing and based on my previous experience and it makes it look easier but it's like there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of brain power that have gone into a lot of things with there and it's like um yeah i don't think i've answered your question but it's like yeah there's a yeah because some of the best solutions is like oh i didn't even know i needed needed that and it's like oh this works wonderfully it's like it's great and behind the scenes it's so complex to actually sort out and make look simple the things that look very simple are the ones that actually have taken the most uh thinking and brain power it's like if you look at my career a lot of that is like i've fallen into but the last 10 years i haven't but a lot of that has taken a lot of thinking and reflection and what makes me happy what doesn't make me happy what do i want to be doing now what do i want to be doing in the future i don't think about the future that much but yeah it's really interesting because in your circumstance, I find it it's a little more tricky to ask those deeper questions, I find, because your understanding of your own inclinations is relatively stable. <laughs> uh, and it's it's in it's often the hardest part, I think, of finding work other than accessing the the people you actually need to talk to are accessing your own inclinations and the the amount of sh people who get in their own way is is unbelievable how do you get in your own way when you're trying to find your best work there must be obstacles that you yourself are putting in your own way well, yeah one of the big ones is both overthinking and projecting my own uh things in those situations so like a lot of what i do is around helping people be successful and setting people up for success. But if I sometimes overthink or I go, oh, this happened five years ago because of X, Y, and Z, the same situation and the same thing's happening right now, the same conclusion's going to happen. And then I'm actually using my previous experience, not as in a healthy way, because I'm projecting what happened last time into that situation because I'm overthinking it. So sometimes it's taking that step back and going, understanding it. And like, if we go with like just the usual when we run a retrospective as part of a team and we we go we're taking the assumption that every single person has done their best work and they've done their best sometimes i forget that and i go oh because i know this person they've done this because of this this and this and they're thinking of that because i'm overthinking it that's taking that step back and relaxing and getting my, in my own way and then sometimes for me as well it's like right what's important what's not important Learning that I, it took a long time for me to learn to be able to step away and go, right, I can let these things go. It's, it's work. It's important. And I care massively about my work. But at the same time, no one's going to die if I take a couple of days off. And taking that kind of learning around that. And then if I, if I spend too much time working on something, it's actually going to be probably negative impact versus taking the three things. But yeah, that's how I get in my way. The overthinking is a big one. Something you just need to do. And then at the same time, because I'm a very uh, decisive person and human being, I'm suddenly too direct in making decisions. Sometimes I need to take the step back and actually go, right, it's back getting that balance right. Yeah, and I think each time it sounds like the answer is taking a step back. Yeah. It's a step back and it's a, it's awareness. Because I'm going to drill back. It's, I, never, I trained as a therapist for something from my outside work interest, and I didn't realize how much that awareness would help me with work. And having that awareness about what's impacting you and what's causing you to feel that way or think that way. Because when you have that, you've now got information to make a decision. It's like, why don't I like this person? What's causing me not to like them? Or 
all right, I get grump. Why am I making this decision in this situation? When somebody tells me this and when somebody sends me this email or whatever, why am I feeling this way? Uh, when I'm not empowered to do X, again, when you get the awareness, you can think I might make a decision, right? None of us can control how we feel. How we feel is how we act on that is beginning that information. It's like, all right, I now know what makes me happy. I now know what makes me sad. I can now actually make a decision about what I do with that. Yeah. Do you have to train as a therapist in order to access that? No, that was just me having a those bonus life kind of thing. I think yeah. the same thing if you do the same introspection and thinking about that, either working with a career coach or working with a mentor or working, going a senior therapist helps you get awareness about what makes you happy. It's just because part of when I trained as a therapist, a lot of that was going through therapy myself. So then mm. you spend a lot of time learning about yourself and what, how your past has helped shape you, what triggers you have, because you get a lot of awareness out of that. And that, that's the benefit around that. Ignore the training, is that was a separate kind of bit. But the awareness, which comes from yeah, that dedicated time with a mentor or a coach or a therapist, is a massively helped me, mm. keeps massively helping me. And interesting that it has to come from um, from someone else. It's difficult to find on your own. It is yeah, I don't think you'd be able to do that yourself. You need to have that awareness of yourself and all the work has to come from yourself about learning what your triggers are, what your emotions are, how things impact you. But you kind of do need somebody to help you go on that journey. A good manager will help you get that as well, as much as almost anyone else. Thanks so much for breaking down this. I've loved it. No problems. I've enjoyed this chat quite a lot. All right, cool. See you around. Take care. Ciao. The Best Work Podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work Podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.